1: Hey there, revolutionaries. We just launched an incredible new podcast series at Real Vision called My Life in Four Trades. Here's a highlight for you. My worst trades are not the trades I've lost on necessarily, because I always do it with control. The worst trades are the ones that I don't take. And that's really where the nemesis of traders comes into play,
0: fear. I found out just how smart I was, which is to say I went from being a very wealthy and very hubris-ridden young man to having a negative net worth on my 29th birthday. My investment goal went from surpassing the Rockefellers to just getting back to broke. The risks I took were nuts. They were nuts. It was nuts spending 10% of my account on a trade. In some cases, 20% of my account on a trade, but typically five to 10% on my account on a trade. If the markets would have been different, I would have been carried on on a stretcher.
1: Be sure to subscribe and listen at realvision.com forward slash my life in four trades and be sure to use the numeral four when you search. Welcome to a special edition of my life in four trades recorded live with the real vision community in house at our event, the macro experience in San Diego, California. If you ever get a chance, I can't urge you enough to join our in-person gatherings. Our members say it's an unparalleled experience to meet our gang of experts, Raul, and fellow visionaries. We got a special treat this time recording our show with fan favorite, trader Tony Greer. Tony's financial journey was fascinating to learn more about. He's worked at some of the biggest banks in the world and now runs his own independent research firm, TG Macro, analyzing markets across the globe. Enjoy the conversation. Hi, everyone. And Tony, welcome to My Life in Four Trades.
0: How are you today, Maggie?
1: I'm doing well, thanks. So this is a first for the podcast because it's the first one we're doing in person together in front of a live audience. So I hope that we'll have the chance for questions. I don't know. I don't have an iPad or anything up here with some, maybe somebody will give me one. But if not, um, you can be sure to track down Tony afterwards and we'll, we'll get to as many as we can. Uh, But so Tony, um, you picked four trades. The two best, the two worst, that really stand out to you in your very long career. But before we jump into that, give us a little background on you. We do d- the daily briefing together a lot, but we okay. talk about markets all the time. I actually don't know that much about sort of where you came from and how you got into trading in the first place. So give us a little bit of background on Tony Greer.
0: Okay. I'll try to give you a really quick background. Um I graduated from Cornell University in 1990 with the firm intention that I wanted to work on a trading desk because my dad worked on a trading desk and he had one seat for 30 years on Wall Street, who was an over-the-counter trader for Dean Witter. So bids and offers and buying and selling were a dinner table conversation and experience and learning about the competitiveness of the job and you know that it was very performance-based was something that was always intriguing with me. So to cut to the chase... I spent the first 10 years of my career out of college as a currency and commodity trader. I worked for Sumitomo Bank. Um, I worked through two years for UBS. I spent some time in Zurich, and then I spent the rest of that decade up through 2000 as a commodity trader at Goldman Sachs um, in the J. Aaron division for Goldman Sachs, and there I ran the Goldman Sachs Commodities Index for a period of time and ran the Gold Book for a period of time, which is a really powerful job. And I was down on the exchange floor for a period of time, which was really, really eye-opening. And the firm went public. And it went public at a time when I had been investing in technology stocks during the beginning of the dot-com bubble.
1: So by this point, it sounds like you had a lot of experience in a lot of different places. But it's almost going into the family business, right? I mean, this is- Absolutely. Because some people, you know, I grew up in a house where we didn't talk about investing. You know, there wasn't, that just was not part of my experience, but it's something that sounds like was going on at the dinner table all the time.
0: Yeah, I knew what Microsoft was when I was like eight years old, you know, so it was- uh,
1: Talking in tickers. (laughs) Yeah, yeah,
0: exactly, exactly. That was it. I I mean, I remember the days that my dad got those tickers on his pad, you know, and came home was like, I'm going to trade this Microsoft thing, you know, didn't even know what it was. At the time, but that was it because he was into the trading side and the, and the competitiveness. And did
1: so it man. sound like? Did it seem glamorous to you? Oh, did yeah. it seem exciting? Yeah,
0: yeah. My dad, you know, he came through the door every day, you know, loaded with energy, and then went right out to run to literally like work off all of his uh, anxiety. But he was a great competitor at that. But he never let. Um, he was very even-keeled about managing the risk, and so I appreciated that, and I try to try to now carry myself the same way, but now I learned that it took him 30, 40 years to be able to do it without sweating.
1: Right, right. You, you know? saw you saw the finished product, Yes, right? exactly,
0: exactly.
1: <laughs> were you always good at numbers, too? Were you, were you a math guy, or
0: uh, well, what kind of student were no, you? No, I, I, I'm wildly average student. Wiley average. Yeah, I didn't love school. I loved the way I went to school. Um, I loved being at Cornell University, but I was, uh, uh, you know, graduated with like a B plus average. And that was fine with me because it was fine with my dad, too. You know, he was just he was all about, you know, get your experience, etc, etc. And then we'll get you out into the world. And that's what really mattered to him because he didn't go to college. So he didn't have that time in between so very
1: common yeah a lot of guys on the floor even even when i was down there it was uh you know reporting from there it was very common for people not to have gone college kind of go right into trading
0: well when he you know when he realized that it was something that he could figure out and you know didn't necessarily need the school book smarts he was a very street smart guy and i think when he figured that out and got levered into seeing the success that he could have he just figured out how to play the game
1: Let's start with your first trade, and that is quoting gold to the Swiss National Bank at UBS in 1993. So, sort of set the scene for us. Give us a little backdrop of what was going on in your life. How old were you? You uh, know.
0: Yeah. So I was Who I was, was Tony in 1993. Yeah. I mean, I was a 25-year-old kid that UBS, uh, you know, saw some potential in because I, I I joined the FX desk with a little bit of experience and a lot of hunger. You know, I was the guy that liked to get there before everybody else and leave after everybody else. And they appreciated that about my work ethic. And so they sent me to Zurich for six months to work on the treasury desk there and trade currencies and commodities and really just help the risk management there. So
1: so you're a young guy, young single
0: guy in Europe. Young single guy living in Zurich, um, you know, having the time of my life, you know, showing up and, and a really cool place to trade the European time zone, by the way, because you get the um, you know, you get the end of the Asian day and then the beginning of the New York time zone. And so you get a really good look at the global picture of trading. So that, that was really an eye-opening experience right from there. So that we led to, um, let, me go in, let me go into just a couple of the details. Yeah. So to make a long story short, I get to quote the gold book. And this is very early in my career of quoting a gold price. And make a long story short, it's just a very hectic day. The market's rallying. And essentially, I was getting longer as the market went up, just by the way I was managing my book, number one, trying to be long. And number two, I was getting gold sold to me, but gold was still going up. So I had, you know, I had plenty, I had a good long position, I had a winning position on the day, and we were getting towards the end of the day, and a salesman stands up and he says, you know, before the close, we got to quote Swiss National Bank for a, a chunk of gold, and I think it was like just a lack of gold or something like that, which is 100,000 ounces. So we get in and the salesman stands up and he's like, all right, Swiss National Bank for a, you know a, hundred, a lack of gold. And I'm a little bit like a deer in the headlights now because I don't have the experience yet of knowing that when you're quoting a book, you need to have small positions so you can be nimble, so you can provide liquidity and get in and out of whatever little positions you're left with. So to, to kind of make a long story short, I try to get the salesman's opinion on, you know, what do you think he is? And sales uh, gold, they're usually sellers when the big producers call up. National Bank calls up; they're usually sellers. For some reason, one of the options, one of the traders is like, "This is the options guy," and I think that he's covering some negative gamma. I think he's a buyer. I think he's this way. So, to make a long story short, I quoted him a bid price. If the if the if the bid offer price was sort of call it 25 cents, bid at 75 cents on on whatever handle. I quoted him like 50 cents bid at the figure. I quoted him a higher price and he sold me gold. So now I went to my position was twice as long and he asked for a fresh price. And I didn't even know that that was within the realm of possibility so you're you know, you're
1: you're way you're way over your I
0: head over my skis now and I've got a huge position on so he says okay I'll sell you a hundred thousand ounces of gold so now I've got now basically that made me long two hundred thousand ounces of gold which is now you know for every dollar that it moves is two hundred thousand dollars of p so he they because I showed him a bid price he assumed the the seller assumed that I wanted to buy yeah. so he looks you know so the salesman says can I get a price for another hundred thousand so I quoted him a dollar lower. And he said, no, I'll pass on that. And I was like, oh my God, like he passed on that cause he's still selling. And so what he did was went around the street and hit all of the other bids in the street. And all of a sudden my 200,000 shares was $5 out of the money. And you know, then $10 out of the money. And now I'm just a young kid frozen deer in the headlights and I have no idea what to do. So I- st- What's
1: going through your head at this point? Though? I'm gonna because get you- fired. Yeah. <laughs> like without question. Yeah,
0: what's going through my head is But you're I just lost you're it.
1: in you're in a, you're in another country. I mean, this is a big deal, yeah. right? You're like the guy, the young guy they send you over there. I mean, you know, it doesn't get any Were you present of mind enough to know that that was all potentially ending or were you not even thinking about that? Like were you
0: I was concerned for my job. I, I thought that I was going to have a you know a terrible P and L day, and somebody was going to drag me in a room and say like, "Dude, you can't do that here. You just lost you know seven figures of money at 25 years old, and uh, that's not acceptable." And so, to make a long story short, by the time the day was over, I lost more than that, and um, you know did get taken into a, have a conversation with you know the manager of the desk and everything. And he was really, he was cool about it, be it, believe it or not. And, you know, he said that you got some bad guidance on the desk and he recommended that and he, you know, he acknowledged that. And I think that that's probably what saved my life because in the, you know, in the end he was like, you know, you got to know that the Swiss national bank is a seller on a rally of, you know, seven, $8 in gold, which then was a big move because yeah. gold was like 250 bit at 350 and nobody really cared that much. So a five, $10 move was like, you know. And so I went from having, I, I learned a lot of lessons that day. I went from being up on the day and having a really good day to making a mistake, being down on the day, being afraid I was going to get fired, sent home, have to look for a job, start from scratch. And luckily, you know, you learn that the people that are, and that was a lesson for me where I learned that the people involved in trading are actually more understanding than you think, right? This isn't the first time that they lost a million dollars on the desk in a day, and so he just wanted to have a conversation with me about it to sort of smooth out what happened. But that scarred me for a while, you know, like no,
1: no doubt, how long of a period was this going on? I mean, you could see, like, if this was a movie, the close up, the sweat, the stress, the dramatic. Was it was it like quick in an hour, or were you in agony for like half the was, day yeah, trying was, to get yourself out of yeah, this? Yeah, it
0: was about it was it was uh, it was probably four to four to five hours of, you know, when the, from the time that I went from having an update to quoting them a bid price to getting sold that gold to, to the time I got out of the gold and knew my P and L. It was like four hours before, you know, and now I'm like twisting, you know, I didn't have a lot of allies there. Everybody in the office spoke Swiss German and they're like, you know, look at Superman over here that just lost seven <laughs> figures in a day.
1: So. Well, I was, I was going to ask, at any point, did you think about asking for help?
0: Oh yeah, I was asking for help with, with getting liquidity, you know, and that's, what, that's how it goes on the desk. And you're like, when you make a decision that you have to get out of something, you're like, all right, get me gold prices. Right. and everybody in the, in the room will go to the, your liquidity. Everybody in that case has got a scheduled call that they've got to make to go out, and they'll call and find somebody to, to bid them for gold, whoever their counterparty is to call. And then you know, I would say, i wanted, I got to sell this 300,000 ounces now. And literally by the time I got done selling it, it was the low tick of the day, and then it traded up 3 or $4 after that. And I like sat at my desk like this for about, I don't know, 15, 20 minutes after the close and, and just contemplated what was going to happen, and that was a brutal time. Right and then there.
1: you get the phone call. Can you come see me? Yeah.
0: Yeah. And I literally thought it was like, um, you know, I'm going home. Yeah. You know, but. Marching the gangplank. Yeah, exactly. But it, it worked out okay. So, you know, you learn that that's kind of in the course of business at some level and I just had to do better the next time. But that um, was really I'm, agonizing.
1: I'm curious, like, how did you come, how did you manage to come in the next day? Because like, it's one thing when you survive, but then you have that, that weird feeling like you walk in and it feels like everyone's staring at you and you know Well
0: that that was that part was okay. I'm I'm a kind of terminal optimist and so I've never woken up one morning thinking that today was not going to be better than yesterday.
1: And even so, that day.
0: Yeah, even that day. I had already gone through hell, right? It was a it was like you know, when I once I got the confirmation that I was not getting fired, like my blood pressure calmed down, my hands stopped sweating, you know, and I could finally gain some composure and just kind of think about it. But
1: did you understand in that moment that it was a mistake from inexperience or did you sort of doubt that you had what it took because up until now you're yeah you're impressing everyone
0: yeah, it had been going fairly well and this was just you know this was one event and what I what I decided was that I, I shouldn't lean on anybody right if you're the gold dealer and you're responsible for quoting the gold book and reporting a p and l at the end of every day, I don't really care what that sales trader says anymore right. Right. And so, you know, I had a uh, I had a conversation with him and he was abundantly apologetic and, you know, the whole thing. And he's like, I didn't know your position at the time and all this stuff. And so there was there was there was some stuff that we got through and a lot of learning experience. But it was a, one of one of the mega lessons in my life about being at a broker dealer and what goes on when things go completely wrong.
1: Yeah. Did it change the way you approached risk?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, then it became understand. Then then it was the beginning of my understanding that, you know, as running the gold book, it's, you know, this, is, this is a lesson of working at a big bank, you know, running that book, it's not your job to be, you know, first of all, as an inexperienced trader, it's definitely not your job to have maximum risk on all the time and, and really be willing positions around. The job there in that seat is to provide liquidity for people that want to trade gold, for, for clients of the bank for internal traders of the bank, proprietary traders, traders on the desk that have all got a gold position, anybody that's got that on is going right through you. So you know, you kind of learned after that, that even though I'm bullish, sometimes it makes sense to be just flat when the market's going up so that I can quote somebody and have the freedom to be like, okay, I don't know which way he is, I'm just gonna bid an offer and buy or sell and then lay off the risk. And if you do that all the time, you know there's value in the book that you can glean because a lot of times you've got better liquidity than you just offered your client. So there's there's ways to you know to get a lot savvier about becoming a desk dealer. And and from there, I made it I made it my my life's vocation to learn how to be a good desk dealer and, and to quote markets better.
1: You understood the job better than yeah,
0: you first one. Yeah, in the exactly. Door. It was it was a, f- a much fuller understanding of your role in that yeah. seat. And and it wasn't I thought it was. You know, they're sending me across the pond to Zurich I got to make money you know I'm gonna be I'm gonna go there and I'm gonna be the you know smart guy from New York and I'm gonna try to out trade and outwork everybody and you know you you eventually you go speeding into a wall at some point
1: yeah but you got back up you didn't take it to heart you didn't think wow I really I thought I was a really great trader and I, no. I actually I suck at trading
0: yeah no it was it was every day every day has always been a new day for me both in life and in trading and I think that that's that's important and you know you when you when you take your lumps it's okay when you go to sleep that night, it's over. It's got to be over.
1: And you've, you felt like that as a young, it's easier when you're young, I think, to feel like that. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, yeah, because I didn't have any responsibility except myself. So that changes for some of the other trades. And you don't know what you don't know. Yeah, exactly.
1: So your second trade is buying short dated S&P puts during the Great financial crisis of 2008. So yeah. once again, so this is this is a long time. You've been you've been added a long time now. You have a lot more experience now. Yeah. So where where are you? What are you doing? Have you shifted the kind of work you're doing? So
0: in, in life now, I had just left um, I had just left Bank Hapalim, where I ran an equity desk and a sales opera, sales and trading operation there, and I, I had really tight restrictions on trading. In fact, they made it for me so that I essentially could not trade. And you know, while I was irritated with that, I understood the role that I had there because I just had this little lesson several years back. So I'm like, okay, I can facilitate this job. It's worth it. Um, and then I had left there. I went to Dalman Rose, which was a really maverick natural resources-based sales and trading shop, broker-dealer, to work for my friend Ernie Dalman, and to work on a desk where. You know, I really thought that I could do even better than I was doing at Bank Habiblum. I was—I had a ton of equity business that I was putting through the machines. I was making a good living, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and the great financial crisis happened, right? So the markets now, two thousand eight, the markets crashing, and.
1: But I think it's worth pausing for. So I know most people were, you know, know what happened then and were in that. But, I mean it was a really crazy time i mean people yeah. were petrified things were going on people didn't want to talk about things i mean there were really really experienced traders and investors who were just scared the wheels were coming off right yeah
0: yeah and you could sense a lot of that too you could sense that in the market and that's what helped me with my trade in that i wanted to speculate that the market was going down right so i you know here i am sitting at Leaving, leaving, having a big job at Bank Hapalim where I'm a manager to going to Dalman Rose where I'm like a co-manager, but really I'm, I run a team of sales traders of five sales traders, and that's my job. Um, but now I can trade again, right? I've got very loose restrictions on what I can do. So to make a long story short, when you know I've got a trading group of friends and my my confidants are like, yeah, this the, you know this tape is going to go down. You know, we start hearing about when you're. At a, at a shop like that, and you start hearing about, hey, I can't take this guy's name. When, once you hear that, you know, you're like, wait a minute, there's, there's credit issues? What do you mean so you can't is take early. this guy's name this as is a be- counterparty?
1: This was before things cratered then. Well, it was, that no,
0: had- it was during. It was during. Okay. It was during things cratering because that's when, you know, that, that's eventually when, you know, what became the big story was that Lehman's credit is no good. Yeah. Like, excuse me, how is that possible?
1: So this was the stuff people didn't want to talk about. When I would talk to them as a reporter, I would ask them questions and they just wouldn't, you could tell what they weren't saying. And it was mm. things like this. Yeah. Because they didn't want to call anybody out or create more panic. Yeah. But it was things like,
0: Yeah. It's just the banking the bank makes a decision and says, OK, we're reading about this in the paper. It looks like their credit is bad. Send a memo down to the desk that you can't trade with them. What did so, you think
1: when you were getting that?
0: Well, you know that it's, a, it's, a, it's some kind of inherent systemic risk that they're addressing, right? So what it does is it made me even more bearish. So I figured out a strategy where I was buying short-dated puts on the S&P. So to make a long story short, to, to sort of uh, lay that out, when markets were having retracement rallies, I was still mega bearish and I would kind of sit around in the I would pick a strike either a week or two weeks out and I would sit around in these out of the money puts and just bid absurdly cheap prices for them like you know nickel and dime prices and I would stick those bids in and I would see what kind of contracts I could accumulate because I wanted to own these puts for when the market turned and when the market turned I knew that volatility would expand direction would go down and my puts would explode. So to make a long story short. But not
1: everyone was, it seems in hindsight, the great financial crisis, everybody's like, oh, the world was falling apart. Of course that was, but not everyone was in agreement and people didn't believe these worst case scenarios were going to happen. No. There was a, you know, it wasn't so obvious.
0: No, it was a contrarian trade, really, which was what gave me confidence, you know? And it's like one of those things that you're like a wise guy sales trader almost, and you're like, oh yeah, this tape is going down, you know? And you look at it technically, and you've got eight ways through Sunday that you're bearish about it. And so to get to the trade point is that I, I was buying these options and collecting for as much as I could for a nickel, for a dime, and then they would literally, they were expiring, in those two weeks, the tape would peter out on the upside and turn and crater, and a lot of times close on the lows the days that the options were expiring. So I would just let them roll off at the price, and some of them were expiring at a dollar and a half, two dollars, five dollars. So I'm making absurd returns on my money. And so I'll tell you the story that when I left Hapalim and I went to Dalman Rose, I opened up an account specifically for trading, like for, for being aggressive. My wife was all on board and I threw $50,000 in just to say like, okay, let's go, let's get going here. And so she, my wife asked me after a couple of months and she's like, um, you know, how are we doing with the account? And I was like, pretty good. And she's like, really? I'm like, yeah. She's like, did you know? did you get it through like, is it six figures yet? And I was like, oh, it's a couple of them. And she's like, what? So to make the story, this is the wild part. The day that we, I was like, all right, here, let's go into my account and I'll show you where we are now. So she she comes down and and I call up the account and she's like, there's $475,000 in this account. And I'm like, yeah, what do you think? She's like, that's unbelievable. She's like, keep going. Right, so I'm like, it's yeah. Just, this
1: is the advisor at home.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So to make a long story short, were there
1: other conversations immediately about where that money was going? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that,
0: so that, that that's the, that's the best trade. That, that's on the best trade list yeah. of my life, right? And now we're going to end that, and we're going to talk about. I want to, I want to ask you
1: a question, though. It's the wanna, same I trade. I know. Yeah. I got, I got a sneak peek at them, but I want to ask you about having the confidence when. So what gave you the confidence? to be contrarian, especially, so it's one thing when you're contrarian and you want to stick to your guns, but in the chaos of what was happening in 2008, like what made you so sure that that was the right thing to do? You know, because, because people were literally afraid to do anything. Like people, even people who had the right idea, when you think the wheels are coming off and you're seeing what a lot of us weren't right. And we found out about this afterwards, Mm. but people were like, this is I'm like scared about what's happening. People were close to run on banks. Like you, you remember how scary that was. People were not making decisions. What made you be so sure that that was
0: well? Because the market, the market continued to number one confirm my belief due to the way it was behaving technically. So with a a bearish view, you would sit there and say, "Okay, we're gonna we've bottomed now. There's a couple of comments on the tape that are gonna make this short cover. You know, let's see where the resistance level is. Like, where's a a really, really high level for this to peter out?" And so, as you know, if it got close to there on the approach, you're like, "Okay, well, I I don't think I think it's gonna totally fail here." So what I would do is I kind of scan the market and look at where my my sort of the internals of the market were still breaking down for example even though the s&p was rallying you know big stocks were still flat on the week or they were big stocks were up on the week and on friday's close they would close dead even you know flat on the week and you know those were my one of my signals and then another signal that is no longer a signal is something called libor ois mm-hmm. which is basically an interbank interest rate that banks charge each other to lend each other money and before the Fed came in and really distorted that, you could see that this LIBOR iOS rate would be ticking higher and higher and higher. And you'd be like, yeah, these banks, are. there's more stress. There's more credit stress. There's, you know, this trade is not over yet. And I'm going to keep doing this until I see a reason or a total capitulation on the downside.
1: Do you think being a trader made you more aware than maybe some fundamental you know, people, maybe business people who are looking at a thing. Do you think the fact that you were so in tune based on all the jobs you had of those kind of indicators yeah. gave you a sort of yeah, it Yeah,
0: it was helpful because I'm noticing now, you know, there's people that are only stock centric, right? And in the stock market, especially, you realize that when you deal in equities, there are people that really only care yes. about equities, right? And they're really like bottom up researchers, you know, like they start by knowing, you know, the CEO and, and what his plans are, et cetera, et cetera. So they're bottom up stock pickers. And you know, a lot of those people never really gave up the ghost, you know. They were like, you know, reiterating buys on the way down for starters and kind of when, when you when you have the opposite idea and the market's confirming your idea and you're seeing people like, you know, stick to their, their guns on positions that are already wrong. Yeah. You look at that, and you're like,
1: and they were not insignificant people, too. No, these no, were no. some, you know, these were some people who had a reputation, who, you know.
0: Yeah, but the tape continued to confirm, you know, that that was the thing, and that was that that was when I sort of developed a much more serious study that that now converted into the the sort of uh, process behind T G Macro and how I get into trades now and and my analysis process, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So that was the very beginning of it, of, of getting a lot more serious about it.
1: Well, when you have a win like that.
0: Yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly. And I didn't even think that something like that was possible or that I would ever be able to pull it off. And and when I did, it was really, really refreshing. But you know, I'll have to say that the story ends right where my wife and I sat and looked at the account. And that, that was the sentiment moment that we had to check it out and just see exactly where it was. And that was the high print
1: Did you know it at the time?
0: Nope. I thought I was going to make another $5 million and and buy myself a couple of cars and a pool. And and so I didn't, you know, I literally- I knew
1: they were spending that money. I knew it. Yeah. That's
0: how I was thinking about it.
1: So this is the first time that someone's, one of someone's best trade, best trade ever is also their next trade. Your third trade is- your second, it's, it's another worst trade or another yeah. one of your losers. And it's the same exact trade.
0: Yeah, this is the worst trade of my life. This was a really, really rough experience for me. So I turned that $50,000 that I turned into $450,000 over a course of about eight or nine months. To cut to the chase, I turned it back into $50,000 in the next year and a half. So it was probably just trying to use the same strategy after things changed. And I was upsizing my bets on the way down instead of, instead of bidding for five or $10,000 worth of long-dated calls and just having those lottery tickets. I was actively buying, like paying offers and going home on a weekend with $150,000 worth of puts and just having an enormous position and saying, okay, if these expire worthless, come and get me. And they came and got me. You know, and it was so really so. This just,
1: is this, so. This is just a continuation. Yeah. Right? So what it's, happened? It's was, the same year.
0: Yeah. The market, Yeah. Exactly. The market bottomed, and that was literally when my wife and I did the okay. Let's take a look at the account, and it was very much like you know this thing is done to me. Like the S and P, like the S and P, like there, like the sentiment at that time at at the bottom of the financial crisis. Somebody said to me, one of my friends that's a fund manager on the phone when I asked him, with the S and P on like an 800 handle. I was like, you know, he's, he, he's the sole manager of the fund. I'm like, what do you think here, dude? He goes, dude, it's gonna get so that like, admitting that you have a stock at a cocktail party is gonna be like admitting you have syphilis. <laughs> and I was like, oh my God. Like really, this is like, you know, this is, the, this is the end. Like this is the end of the stock market. This is the end of stock investing because that's what it felt like. And it, that, it did. that was one, anybody you know, here, Lehman was going here back Anybody
1: here uh, working, trading at that time? Yeah. I saw some people nodding their heads. It was horrible. It felt like that. That's so funny to hear that now in retrospect, but it's seriously like that, that crazier things were said. Yeah. And then
0: even, you know, I, I was so pigheaded about it. So the, the part that was so horrible was that, you know, you, you would see, you know, the right, the fed turns on QE, you know, and I'm like, what the hell is that going to do? You know, like this, this doesn't matter at all. Cause I didn't understand the, I didn't understand the mechanism by how that was gonna work. I was like, so what, so well, they're gonna- no one did. Yeah, exactly. It's like, so they're gonna buy all these securities and they're gonna what, disappear, right? Like they're gonna get wiped off the face of the earth. And even David Tepper came out on TV and made what everybody knows is the, probably the greatest call in the history of trading when he was like, you know, this is, that was it. The Fed is gonna make sure that they arrange us, you know, they rearrange this market. They're gonna pump liquidity. And you know, he was insanely bullish at the bottom. And Appaloosa had that great year. And I was like, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. This guy's crazy. You know, and I literally that was my mentality. But because I confused, I, I confused a good trade for having brains, for being smart, right? And I thought that since I had a 10-bagger trade, it's like this guy's getting on TV to pump the market up so he can sell his stock. This is the biggest bunch of bullshit. You know, I was so cynical. And it was just like at that point, I was Zeus as a trader in my mind. And when I got to the point of buying $25,000 worth of options and then buying $100,000 worth of options, and I've had even bigger positions than that and have almost all of it expire worthless, that's when, I, you, know, that, that's when you have a come to Jesus moment. And when the account got back down to a $40,000 handle, I closed it because I was like, I'm not gonna blow this 40 grand now. I was like, this is the worst, you know, goddamn experience of my life. And I hadn't told my wife yet.
1: <laughs> oh!
0: Yeah, so that was... How'd the, that go? Poorly, <laughs> poorly. Uh, you know, it, it was, uh, it, it, went, it went poorly because she was counting on, you know, that being there and yeah. me not giving that back, right? So when it was, that money was gone, it was like, what? How did you do that? And and, and I made a mistake. The, the period that I gave it back was was uh, I kind of I, I, I had the wrong time frame. I made the money in about four months and gave it back in about eight. And now that now that I think about it, that was the exact time frame. So it was taking those chances, trying to live through. You know, not, not talking about it. And it wasn't like I was hiding it from my wife, but I was we just weren't talking about it. And you I was like, was all right. Turn around. Yeah, I'm gonna make, like one of these, I'm gonna put I'm gonna I'm gonna buy a hundred thousand dollars worth of puts, and that's gonna be a one million dollar trade, and this is gonna be one point three million dollars. You
1: regret not not saying anything because she may have questioned you.
0: Yeah, I probably do. She's you know, she's often she she's is still a wall your wife, streeter. Right? She's a wall streeter too. She's a Goldman Sachs uh, alumni and super sharp and and has always had good intuition in trading, believe it or not. And it's really, really you know, because she She's not in the trading game, but has had given me good advice as an outsider watching me trade. And so it definitely would have been a better idea to bring her into that because then I would have taken a partner in the in the turmoil. And maybe she would have said something like, you know what? How about make believe you turn 50 into 250 and let's stop now? Yeah. Right? That would have been brilliant. Because that would that would have been something that she might have said. And so it was, I, because it was all on me and because I had done it myself, I was like, I, am, I got myself into this mess and I'm gonna get myself out. And it was the market gods that were like,
1: how, how did you, right. how, how stressed out were you at that time?
0: <sighs> it, it took such a toll on my life that one of the, one of the things that I learned was that I, I mixed in my trade, my, I mixed in my life with the trade. So that's a relevant part. Right? So I said, I told you that I had a job as a head of an equity desk at Bank Hapalim, at a big Israeli bank. And I forwent that opportunity because there were, there, was a lot of, there were a lot of issues there to contend with, but I saw a great opportunity at Dolman Rose. And then when I sat down, because of what was going on, commissions were raining from the sky, right? So my, my commission business was flourishing. And that's why I was like, oh, it's okay. You know, like if I, if I lose a little back, it's okay because I just had a good month. Mm. And that's that is the stupidest thing that I've ever thought in my life. It's like what is what does your job have to do with this trade? It has nothing, right? But I was saying thinking to myself, it's like, well, if I have a great month and I'm I'm plus, you know, XYZ thousand dollars here, if I lose XYZ thousand dollars here, it's like pays for itself. Yeah. You know, and then you realize that, you know, nothing matters except the P&L. And at the P&L, you know, it's it's funny to listen I, when he says uh that everybody here is like money-hungry or things like that. And it's like, I, would, I wouldn't call myself money-hungry, but I care about the scoreboard more than anything.
1: Yeah, you know, the this, competi- it's the yeah, competition. Well,
0: it's the score. It's yeah. winning. It's like, you know, I'm, I've racked up more points than anybody else, and that, that's kind of the, the competitive level. And that's also the level of, of kind of hubris that winds up taking you down a few notches once you get it wrong.
1: What's interesting is you knew what it was like to take outside risk, right? You had that yeah, lesson yeah. at the very beginning of your career. Mm-hmm. Why do you think that it happened again? Like, did you forget about that lesson
0: or? I just thought, you know, I mistook it as a different opportunity. I, I, I mistook it as a different, you know, this is, this is something different, right? This is, this is Lehman going bankrupt. This is like, a, this is a black swan from outer space. Like, nobody's ever seen this. So that kind of gave me the, the balls or whatever to, to keep trying and not, not quit at this trade. And, and uh, it got the best of me. And so I, after I closed that, that after that twelve-month experience, I didn't trade for four years. Not one trade. Really? Not one dollar of risk in the markets.
1: You'd always trade it though.
0: Always, always. And I had to I had to stop because that was that was just torture to me. It was it was while my business was going well, I was acting like a jerk because I was so angry at how this trade was going. So I was like beside myself and it was taking me out of that game. So now I went to Dolman Rose and I brought over five traders with me and I, contri- I ran this pod and you know, here I am snapping at everybody like, dude, come on, you know, like blah, blah, blah. And I'm like. Did
1: oh, they man. ever ask, call you out on it? Like, did anyone know what was going on My partner
0: did, my, my partner that was there, kind of my, uh, another sales trader that was there with me knew the whole story and uh, didn't have anything to say about it. He was just like, Shaking his it's head. all you, man. You know, not something that he would have done, but yeah. that's all right. Did
1: you, um, when you made the mistake, not mistake, but when you had your bad, first bad trade, you shook it off because you, you're an optimist. You woke up every day. It doesn't sound like that happened this time.
0: Yeah, no, that wasn't. You know, what I, what I shook off was the money being gone. You know, I shook that off. That, that was quick. That was like, all right, dude, you can, you can come to the realization of that. That, that. You can forget you even had it right? Like, just forget that it was even there. I mean, it was, you know, it was, it was something, the reason that it was so cool. That's,
1: that's a lot of money. to.
0: Forget yeah, well, it was about, a lot <laughs> because I was about to make it bigger. You know, that was the idea was that it was going to be like really a big chunk of a nest egg. And we were going to go after this trade and, and, you know, be done investing when we were done with this trade, you know, and, and that's, that's, that's another thing that you learn is that now I don't ever look at anything as a, this is it trade, you know, now it's like, okay, where does this fit within the way I've liked all these other trades in my life. And okay, control yourself because in five years, there's gonna be another trade. In five years from that, there's gonna be another one. And so I try to keep that in mind and, and to kind of manage everything within its own silo. And I feel like that's something that I learned from that and to keep things, you know, because I, I, was, I was making the huge mistake of, of confusing my commission dollars with, you know, yeah. being okay for losing money over here or paying for, you know, Robin Peter to pay for Paul that kind of thing. And that never works out. So
1: did you, did you at this point though, doubt your skill? Why did you, why did you hang up the training? Did you just feel like I decided to stress on your life or did you think that you just could you you weren't good at it?
0: Well, put it this way. I tried to turn a negative into a positive, And I looked at my commission business that was still ringing off the hook. And, you know, I was like, all right, I, I have to focus as the guy that wants to shrug this off, become an optimist and be positive again. I was like, all right, let me, let me focus on this team around me and the situation that we have Right, we've got a once in a lifetime situation to be brokers through and we're doing a ton of business. And so let me just go about, you know, earning every one of these dollars back the hard way instead of the easy way, you know? And so that was big.
1: So let's go to your fourth trade. And I wanna circle back on something you said with that, but let's go to your fourth trade. Um, And that is now you're back in, somehow you find your way back into trading. So before we talk about the trade itself, what, what was it that triggered you after those four years to get back into it? You start your own firm.
0: Yeah, you know, I left. Uh, I guess when when Cowan bought Dolman Rose, that was probably four years later, and when I left there to start what I call the pickup basketball uh, season of my career, that I was totally miserable working for three different shops in three years, and that's not the kind of guy that I am, or it's not the, that's not the way to conduct a trading business kind of thing it's just it was a matter of circumstances and so I decided then that I was like all right you know I'm not that happy with this that's going on but you know what if I start trading again at least I'll just I'll be able to focus on that and tune out a lot of the noise that's at these three shops that I went to that i didn't have a lot of allies or a lot of friends and I was just kind of figuring out how to get my feet back under me after, you know, Cowan bought Dolman and my Great Commission deal evaporated because they weren't gonna pay me the same thing that Dolman Rose was. All the sales traders that I went with went in a different direction. The industry changed. Job. This happened yeah.
1: this happened. Yeah, it was like the Wall rug Street. got pulled off yeah.
0: from everybody and everybody scattered and went to different places for, for quite a while. Right.
1: So how did you feel when you started trading again like were you were you kind of enthusiastic like oh, it feels good it feels like where I belong or you're kind of like i don't know how i you know no it was
0: it was very ref, it was refreshing I, I was thrilled to get I, I feel like i got a part of myself back,
1: so like, the scars healed,
0: yeah yeah, you know what you get you get a little bit of your mojo back you know it's all about you know feeling like a master of the universe within your own trade mm-hmm. and and I guess when you get that life mojo back from having it be absent for so many years, i guess that it uh it builds into your personal confidence and that affects other things that you do in your business. And so I was very careful about to not have that thing go wrong again, right? And I, I, so what I did was when I restarted it, I wrote out a set of ground rules for this account so that I wouldn't have the same disaster scenario. And I started with no options, right? Like no more of that stuff, you know, like just too toxic, too tempting. And, you know, decided that I wanted to just set up a trading account that was going to be like, where I was gonna buy things for cash, sell them higher, you know, tried not to even short things. I just wanted to be, you know, I wanted to find, I wanted to keep it as simple as I could, and that's how I kind of evolved into this trading strategy that I have now, where I really, I don't do anything fancy. I hunt trades that start in the bottom left corner of my screen and go to the top right corner of my screen, and I figure out where I can jump in in the middle. Which,
1: which, you, which you have told us uh, when, when we get some great questions and you're like, listen. Yeah. So your fourth trade, and this is a winner, Yeah, we're happy to say Um, is buying oil lockdown lows in the spring of 2020.
0: Yeah, that was exciting because that was a that was a uh, the energy market that we're in now is a bull market that I've been waiting for because I've been waiting to really crush a bull market properly. You know, like with the with the dot com market, I had invested in it and done well with it and, and things went well, but there was a huge drawdown, you know, after that. So from, from the level that I had taken my account to, a huge drawdown to where it was, but it wasn't anything traumatic. This was just sort of getting back on my feet and trading again, but I, I was waiting for the, I I had been sitting around saying, okay, the next bull market in commodities or equities is mine, right? Like I've got I've to really be able to dig in. And then we get the situation with COVID, the pandemic, the lockdown, crude oil going to zero. And as a commodity trader, you know that this is just not sustainable, right? The world runs on commodities. We are in a completely artificial lockdown situation. This is a one of a kind scenario. And so I started poking around at some of my friends at, um, at Morgan Stanley and at, at Goldman Sachs that work on energy desks. And when oil was you know, literally $10 a barrel on its way to a negative print, I was calling these guys up and saying, let me ask you this, are you guys quoting your clients like their lifetime supply of gasoline right now, because I would love to buy my lifetime supply of gasoline right now, right at this price, right here, right? Like oil's $10 a barrel, unleaded gas is like 48 cents or whatever it was. I was like, this is, let's just buy all the gas that we ever need. And they're like, are you crazy? Like, dude, are you out of your mind? I was like, are you? Are you out of your mind? Like, what are we going to run things on going forward? Are we going to use no more gas going forward? So you noticed about all of the, all of the stimulus that I got on the way down was so revealing about how this trade, how commodities were not going to last at this price. So one of my friends called me up and was like, "So hold on a second. So if I have like a forty-gallon tank and the price is negative negative two dollars, I'm going to go fill my tank up, and the guy's going to give me eighty yeah. dollars? Is that how that's going to work?" I was like, "No, it's never going to work like that." And that that was one of the things. Like this is how people are thinking now. This is, and th- and that's kind of why I'm thinking to myself if. You know, I'm trying to buy my lifetime supply of gasoline here, and this guy that doesn't know commodity markets thinks he's going to get cash back when he fills up his truck. You know, there's a, there's a grave misunderstanding <laughs> with what's going on. I see a
1: dislocation. Yeah, I there's need a to dislocation
0: in what's going on, and and um, so that was a, a situation where it was okay. Let's buy let's buy oil futures at at teen single digits and figure out what to do from here. Yeah. And to make a long story short, it it, it was really difficult to hold on to and to cut to the chase i you know i probably let half of it out in the 70s or 80s just to say wow that was that was you know that was like my old spy trade like a really really successful life changing trade and because of my new method that i developed along the way of having a trailing stop on the balance of my position i was kind of sitting around with oil in the 80s and 90s saying all right this trade's getting old i'm about done here like i'm i'm ready to sell my futures and then Putin invaded Ukraine and handed me a bid, and I was like, okay, we're out. That's it. That trade's over, and we're done. So now it's a question of managing that PL back into risk and, and, and figuring out how to run this trade for the next 10 years, because I think that's how long it's going to be with us. And so that's another thing that I managed to develop back then was saying, okay, nothing is an all-in trade anymore. Yeah. Everything is a let's-see how this goes and that's sort of, did, I guess that's a, a way to show how it sort of evened out my, I figured out how to smooth out my mentality with that kind of uh, approach, if that's fair. Yeah. And so all of it was really, really unbelievable learning experience.
1: So what would your advice be to somebody who's trading now? And I think it's really telling that you said that when you were going through that really hard period, you were alone. Yeah, um, and a lot of people. The nature of it now is they're trading from home and they're alone. So, what, what what is your advice from from these trades that you've learned that you might want to pass on?
0: Well, I mean, we can speak to that a little bit and say that a lot of the things that I I learned, both right and wrong, about the trades while I was in them and after them, all came from talking to people. So, like you said, like you know, there, there's no reason to be alone in trading. There's no reason to have. A, you know, one of the things that you learn at Goldman when you, know, you get into heavy duty risky situations that spring up out of the blue on a trading desk is take a partner, right? Grab somebody else and say, how, would, how would, should we look at this? Because now you've there's no longer that risk of, let's put this trade in the drawer, right? Let, let, let's just you know, hide this and not let it, you know, there's, as outrageous as that always was to me, I would I'd never had the you know, the stones to do something as crazy as that but the smoothing out of the decision making process and being a little bit more calm about it i guess is, is what i picked up if i was going to say if i was going to give some experience, um advice i think that it has to do with number 1 let my lessons let my lessons save you money you know and 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 take me up on the advice believe me if you're a beginner trader or an intermediate anything short of an expert don't trade options you know don't lever yourself you know keep I have such tight uh, parameters on my risk now, on my position sizes, everything is really scientific, I, I never risk more than 1% of my capital on any trade and I've got a real method and I've gone from saying, okay, I'm gonna read the newspapers, the books and everything that I can about the world and I'm gonna decide what I think about it and I'm gonna put on my positions and I'm gonna wait for the world to, to conform to what I thought. Whereas now it's looking at the market with open eyes every day, every week, every month, every quarter, and every year on the closes and studying all of that information intently yeah. across, across indexes, sectors, macro securities, across everything. And having done that study now very seriously since I started TG Macro, my trading performance has exploded, exploded. And so that was a real learning experience of going through the highs and the lows and getting beat up and black eyes and inner turmoil and, you know.
1: That's fantastic. Tony, thank you so much. This was so great. And I love that when we do these podcasts, I'm finding that um, the the worst trades are the ones that people – learn the most from exactly. and, and talk about the most and are as important as the winning ones. Yeah, thank you, you so much for sharing.
0: Sure. You shrug off the pain and you know, you remember the lesson that you take from it. So thank, and, you, and for, thank uh,
1: you for, sharing it, bringing all that
0: out. Yeah, absolutely. I hope that helped some people. It did. Great. All right. That's a wrap on this
1: week's edition of my life in four trades. For more on the series, visit realvision.com forward slash my life in four trades. Make sure to use the numeral four. This podcast is a production of Real Vision. Our executive producer is Lisa Desai. Our producers are Frank Fowler and Michelle Ribeiro. Our sound engineer is Levi Mercurio. Our production assistant is Ranjani Vankarakrishnan. And this show is hosted by me, Maggie Lake.
0: You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad.